ladies and gentlemen, in your lifetime and in my lifetime, we have gone all the way in the culture from Madonna singing Papa Don't Preach into the churches and the churches are saying preachers don't preach. The time will come when they will have itching ears and they will turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables myths. But Paul gives a word concerning apostasy and with a note of urgency he says to the young preacher, Preach the word! That's what God wants the preacher to do in this day. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidah. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahidah, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahidah. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me? Thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Himelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me, but the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. And the king said unto Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priest and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, smote he with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen and asses and sheep, with the edge of the sword. I want to stop reading right there, but I'll ask you to leave your Bible open, and we're going to look at several different uh, texts that surround these verses that we've read uh, this afternoon. I've been studying the life of Saul the last, I don't know, eight or nine months. I preached to a series at our church, about 14 messages out of the life of Saul. What's amazing to me is that Saul is such a tragic figure. What potential, what possibilities were in store for him that day as just a young man being obedient to his father, chasing those donkeys, trying to find uh, uh, the animals for his dad, just being an obedient son. And in the middle of those things, he ran into one of the greatest destinies anybody could ever have. God chose him to be the first king of Israel, anointed by Samuel, presented to the people. And really, he started out uh, well, not long doing good, but he did start out good. There was a time when Saul had a semblance of a relationship with God. There was a time when he had some type of, uh, some type of uh, spirituality about him, at least some type of humility about him at the very least. Because Samuel at one point said to Saul that he used to be little in his own eyes. But the trajectory that Saul is on as we come to this chapter is not a good one. Just when we thought that he could not sink any lower, he proves us wrong. And this is certainly a, chat, a sad chapter in Saul's life. 
and even in the Word of God, 85 of God's anointed priests are murdered in cold blood at the order of an insane, jealous king. This is not the Saul that is the humble servant. This is not the Saul that is winning battles and leading men into battle with victories. This is a man that has been plagued with insanity, plagued with demons, plagued with all kind of things, uh, all because of David and his jealousy for David. To get the context, you've got to go back to chapter number 21. Let me just sum it up for you. David uh, is on the run from Saul. Chapter 21 uh, uh, tells us about his initial movements when he left, uh, left the house of Saul. He was married to Saul's daughter, and he, he fled for his life, and he comes to the house of God. That's the first place he comes is to the priest's place. Well, that's not a bad place to go when you're in trouble. Amen. And he come for two things. He come for bread and he come for a sword. He needed provision and he needed protection. Well, you can find them things at the house of God. Somebody say amen right there. I'm glad when you need some bread, you can go to the, go to the church house and find some. Amen. When you need some protection, get that sword. You can get it at the house of God. No doubt about that. But Ahimelech, in a somewhat interesting decision here, uh, he gives David exactly what he needs to survive on the run, and we find out almost parenthetically that at this uh, at this event, when when David is getting the bread and he's getting the sword, we find out in verse number seven of chapter twenty-one that there's somebody there named Doeg the Edomite, and that fact is put in here because it lets us know what's going on in chapter twenty-two. Saul hears that David has been uh, uh, consorting with the priests and Ahimelech and Doeg says yeah he speaks up and says yeah I saw him there I know he's there and I know he's been talking to Ahimelech the son of Ahida Doeg is a spy in the midst if you will well, David moves to uh, Gath, and then he moves to the cave in Adullam there, and he gathers men. These mighty men are coming to him. He finds his way to Moab to drop off mom and dad, and that was a good place. Mom and dad had some family. You remember, you remember David had a great-grandmother that was a Moabitess, and so he had some family there in Moab, I guess, and he dropped off mom and dad. And under the direction of a man of God, he finds his way uh, to the wilderness of Judah and they settle in the forest of Hereth, the Bible says. And that's where, really where I want to pick up the story this afternoon. Our spotlight is on Saul. He's sitting under a tree around the house. That's interesting as well if you want to do a study on Saul sitting under trees. He liked to sit under trees, didn't do much, but he liked to, he liked to sit under trees. And uh, in fact, when he died, the men of Jabesh Gilead took him and buried him under a tree. That's a very interesting uh, study in and of itself. But Saul received some intel that someone has seen David and it sets in motion these horrific events that are recorded for, her, for us. Now, I believe in order to get the most out of this story, you've got to understand something about David. That Saul was doing good until David come on the scene. Saul was doing all right. He thought he was all right, and he didn't think things were that bad until David came on the scene. And when David started getting that praise and David started getting that worship, that stirred up Saul, and he eyed David from that day forward, the Bible says. And, you know, that's a picture of an epic struggle that we see in our own life. Saul is that old rejected king. He is that first king. He is that fleshly king. And one day, here comes a new king into 
into the kingdom. And he's everything that Saul is not. Listen, David has a heart for God. Saul doesn't. David wants to please God. Saul doesn't. David wants to worship God. And Saul doesn't. David wants to fight for God. And Saul does not. And we see a battle going on. And what we have is we got two kings living inside of one kingdom. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little familiar to me. When I got saved, I got two kings living inside of one kingdom. There's that old king. There's that fleshly king. There's that rejected king. But I'm glad when I got born again, I'm glad David come in on the inside. He's anointed of God. He is that sanctified one. Amen. Anointed by God. That's what the word Christ means. It means anointed. He is that sent one. You can go back to chapter 17. David was sent by the Father with bread for his brethren. Amen. If that ain't a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. Amen. Aren't you glad Jesus came and he brought the bread of life? Thank God for it. He is that scorned one. You remember when David came? The Bible says that his brethren scorned him and that they mocked him and ridiculed him. He was mocked by the very people that he came to help. My soul, our Bible tells us that the Jesus, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He's the sanctified one. He's the sent one. He's the scorned one. David was that saving one. Amen. He was one when nobody else would and really when nobody else could. David's the one that went down in the valley and in the name of God Almighty Jehovah, he mowed down the enemy of Israel. Amen. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus Christ went down into your valley and he took care of that enemy that you could not conquer and you could not defeat. I'm thankful that we have a Savior. One man, one man wrote the victory for an entire group of people, amen. One man saved an entire nation, amen. That's exactly what Jesus did, hallelujah. It only took one, it only took one to save us all, amen. Thank God for David. But if David is a picture of Jesus, Well, then Saul, not only is a picture of that flesh and that old man, but I believe in our text this afternoon, that would make Saul a picture of the Antichrist or even Satan himself. Because Satan is always trying to oppose the lordship and the kingdom of Christ. You see, at this point, Saul knows, and I could take you to Scripture in here, I I won't forsake a time, but at this point, Saul knows that David is going to be king. Everybody knows it. Even the heathen Philistines in Gath know it, that David is going to be king. And yet Saul opposes the anointing, opposes the lordship, opposes the kingdom of Christ. And can I tell you, if that's not a picture of Satan himself, I don't know what is. Satan wants to exalt himself. He will be exalted. He wants worship. He wants praise. He is insanely enraged, insanely jealous against the Lord and his Christ. And that's exactly what I see in this text. I see a picture of the devil. And that's what I want to preach on just for a minute. I'm going to preach on the devils in the details. Because that's exactly what we see in the details of this story. We see a picture of none other than Satan himself. And we are, of course, living in a time where Satan is 
the little G God of this world. He's on the loose. He has freedom that is, has been loaned to him. He is reigning over his domain and he is doing it for a time. Of course, all this will swell up in the tribulation period when he will be given an abnormally abundance of liberty and it will be a time where his reign will swell up just for a time. But let me go ahead and give you the end here at the beginning. That I want you to know something that his kingdom will never conquer God's kingdom but rather God will use him to bring about a righteous kingdom on this earth Amen. one day don't get too excited about it but one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ amen, amen and amen for it let me show you how I see the devil in this text and then I'll sit down see the devil's in the details number one Satan attacks God's abilities. Satan attacks God's abilities. You know, one thing about the devil is he is a slanderer. That's what the word devil means. It means accuser. He is a slanderer. And ever since that day he was cast out, he has been slandering the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's really a two-way street of slander. First of all, Satan, of course, we know this, he likes to accuse us to God. And the Bible tells us that he does that. But not only does he do that, but Satan also likes to accuse God to us. Satan will stop at nothing to slander God to people. He wants to throw and sling mud on the very character and the very reputation of God Almighty. And I see that in this text. There's something going on. David, he's just got a little ragtag group of people. He's just in a, he's just in a cave. He don't have a kingdom. He don't have anything. He's just a man with an anointing from God. But in verse 2, the Bible tells they came. I mean, here they come. Those in distress, in debt, discontented. Somebody said, that sounds like a Baptist church. I say, amen. They gather themselves unto them. I don't know if David's sending out invitations. I don't know if... if I don't know how this is working, but I kind of think that he is. Don't hold me to that, but you can read uh, in the Psalms where those Psalms where David was in the cave and he's saying stuff like this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. The men of Israel start hearing about, hey, there's another. Oh, David, he's in a cave somewhere worshiping God. There's victory with him. Everywhere he goes, he has the touch of God on him. And they're leaving Saul and they're headed toward David. By the way, that's the best move you'll ever make. Amen. But if you think Satan's going to sit there and let you do it quietly, you're crazy. Oh, he hates it and he will stop at nothing to slander the character and the reputation and even what God can do, the abilities of God. And I see that in verse number 7. Saul looks about his servants and he said to them that stood by him, Here now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me and there is none 
that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul begins to look at those servants that are standing by and said, what, are you going to go join them too? You think he can take care of you? You think he's going to give you a job? You think he's going to give you some land? You think he can do anything for you? What can David do for you that I can't do for you? Nobody feels sorry. Man, nobody loves me. You just want to go over and be... Listen, that, if that don't sound like the devil, I don't know what does. That's exactly what Satan does. He's always accusing God to us. And here's what he tells us. He tells us, he can't be good to you. He can't take care of you. He can't meet your needs. He can't promote you. He can't fulfill the desires of your heart. He can't satisfy you. Can I go ahead and make this declaration right here? He is a liar, liar, pants on fire, nose as long as a telephone wire. Amen. He's a liar. That's all he does. He's the father of it. That's the only language he knows is lying. And you better, listen, when he starts telling you bad things about God, you better believe it. He's scared to death because he knows the glory of God. He knows how good God is. Hey, he knows how God takes care of his servants. He knows how God provides for his people and he does not want you go to, can I just say this? Listen, God is a good God. Amen. David has been good to this one right here. He's met every need. He's took care of every problem I got. He's answered my prayer. Every good thing in my life that I have has come from the gracious hand of a merciful God. But if you don't watch it, Satan will come by your pew and he'll start whispering things in your ear about God. Satan likes to distort the situation and make it look like he's the victim and God is the monster. You see that Satan, or Saul doing that in this text? He said, none of you feel sorry for me. Well, bless your heart. What do you mean feel sorry for you? David isn't hunting you. You're the one hunting David. You're not the victim. You're the criminal. And I tell you, if you don't watch out, Satan will twist this thing in your mind and he'll pull this thing around and he'll start making you think that God is the bad guy. But can I tell you, God is nothing but good. He hasn't been anything but good. He will never be anything but good. God is good not because of what he does, but God is good because of who he is. If God ceased to be good, the stars would fall out of the sky. If God ceased to be good, listen, planets would run into one another. If God ceased to be good, we'd all be in hell right now. God is a good God. David can take care of you better than Saul ever could. Amen. Amen. Satan's lie has been and is and will always be this. And listen real close. Satan's lie is that if we fully trust God and fully obey God and fully submit and surrender our life to him, that we will be miserable. That's why most people never submit their life to God. Because they have believed the lie that if they do that, if they obey God, if they trust God, if they go with God, that they'll be miserable. They'll go without. They won't have as much. But can I tell you, Satan is a liar. He causes us to doubt the promises of God, the protection of God, the power of God. And he tries to paint God as some kind of cosmic monster that's only out to hurt us. 
Brother Fleur gave me a book a couple months ago. Uh, I encourage everybody to get a great book. T.S. Rendell, In God's School. He's got that in his bookstore there. He ordered off Victory Baptist Church. Get that. And in every chapter, it's got a, a little poem, something like that. And I'm not much into poems and poetry and all that, but I read this, and this one got a hold of my heart. And I'm going to read it to you. It's called Believe Good Things of God. It said, when in the storm it seems to thee that he who rules the raging sea is sleeping still with bended knee, believe good things of God. When thou hast sought in vain to find the silver thread of love entwined with life's oft-tangled web resigned, believe good things of God. And should he smite thee till thy heart is crushed beneath the bruising smart, Still, while the bitter teardrops start, believe good things of God. Tis true thou canst not understand the dealings of the Father's hands, but trusting what his love has planned, believe good things of God. He loves thee in that love confide, unchanging, faithful, true, and tried, and let now joy or grief be tied, believe good things of God. This canst not raise thy thoughts too high as spreads above the earth and sky. And so his, do, and so his uh, thoughts, thy thoughts outvie, believe good things of God. I like this, in spite of what thine eyes behold, in spite of what thy fears have told, still to his gracious promise hold, believe good things of God. For know what thou canst believe, thou shalt in his good time receive. Thou canst not half his love conceive. Believe good things of God. And Satan will use your present circumstances and your fears and your doubts and he will exploit them to his advantage to encourage you to believe bad things of God. And if you even look at the text here, if you had to pick a side just from knowing what's going on here, David's in a cave with a bunch of you know, misfits. Saul is the king with the, with the army. You would think, I don't know if I want to be on David's team. I think I'd rather be on Saul's team. But can I tell you what the difference is? I know how this story ends. David ends up on the throne. And if you look around this world today, it may seem like the devil and his crowds winning. It may look like they have it all and all figured out and they laugh at us and they mock at us. But can I tell you, one day, my friend, the tables are going to turn. I know how this story ends. The son of David sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning. Amen. Thank God for it. He's good. He's powerful. He's more than enough to meet your needs. Not only does Satan attack God's abilities, but secondly, let me say this, and I'm hurried, Satan aligns God's adversaries. I'm going to hit this very quickly and move on, but I see another picture of, I see the devil in the details here. Satan aligns the adversaries of God. There's somebody in our story named Doeg. Seven times he's referred to, I believe it's seven times, he's referred to as, three times, he's referred to as an Edomite. Edomite. Now, there's no accident, the Bible tags him as an Edomite. That's to remind us that he is not a part of the people of God. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, enemies of Israel. You remember they would not give aid to Israel in the wilderness as they journeyed from Egypt. But we find him in chapter 21, verse number 7. We find him 
in the place of the priests? What's he doing there? That's my question. And then why is he working for Saul? That would be another good question to ask. He was the chiefest, verse 7 of chapter 21, says, of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. What's he doing there? And then we get to chapter 22, verse number 9. He's set over against the servants of Saul. He's numbered among them. Why is he there? Well, there's a lot of different reasons maybe I won't go into, but let me just say this. Doeg is there. He's there in the place of the priest. He's there at church, if you will. But let me just, let me just make this observation. Just because somebody's in church, that don't mean they love God. Jude said there'd be some that crept in. That's what apostates do. They blend in. They look like worshipers. They're terrorists is what they are. They blend in and then they blow up. And that's exactly what Doeg was. He was there in church, but he didn't love God. He was an enemy of God. And what's amazing here, we get to chapter 22 and we read it this afternoon. These priests, Saul accuses them of giving aid and comfort to the enemy, which is David. And he said, you're all going to die. We're going to kill all of you, every one of you. You're going to die. Saul looks at his servants and says, all right, boys, take care of them. And the servants look around at each other. And they look around on the ground. None of them would do it. Now that's pretty amazing right there. That's some people that have more fear of God than they do of man. Would to God we had more like that. They feared God. They weren't going to touch God's anointed men, 85 priests. But there was somebody in the midst. Old Doeg said, I'll do it. And I'm going to tell you what, Satan's always looking for somebody that will say, hey, I'll do it. I'll do it. I don't mind. And it isn't amazing how in a church or a youth group or whatever, it doesn't matter, it isn't amazing how all the rebels just seem to find each other. They all just line up and they all just find each other. Everybody don't like the preacher and don't like what's going on. They all, man, they all seem like best friends. It don't take three weeks for them just to bloop, just magnetize each other. Isn't that amazing? You say, oh, that must be a huge coincidence. No, it ain't no coincidence. Satan, he likes to put together the adversaries of God. He had no fear of God. It isn't amazing to me, and this is such a when I read this verse, let me show you in verse number 19, they went to the, the verse 18, they slew the, the priest, four score and five. And in Nob, verse 19, the city of the priest smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women and children and suckling and oxen and ashes and sheep with the edge of the sword. That's amazing right there how they wiped out every bit of them. Saul's order was to wipe them all out. When I read that verse, I don't know about you, but it made me think of a command that was given to Saul. In chapter 15, he was to go wipe out the Amalekites just like that. Utterly. All of them. All the animals, all the children, young, old, do not leave one Amalekite alive. And he couldn't do it. Isn't it amazing that Saul had trouble lining up with the people of God to kill the enemies of God? but he had no trouble lining up with the enemies of God to kill the people of God. You better watch that crowd right there. You better be watchful of those in your circle that have no fear of God and they will readily line up and they will readily align with anybody that's trying to attack the people of God. I'm, you look up here real close. I'm about done. That's of the devil. 
I can smell Satan all around there. We don't see the devil here, but we see him right here. I can, can't you smell him all over this chapter? Which, which crowd do you line up with? Amen. Just because you're in church don't mean you love God. Just because you're at an afternoon service of Jubilee don't mean you love God. Amen. Listen, I've been a Baptist all my life. I know that. Amen. For a fact. Amen. It's a Baptist nine months before I was ever born. Amen. I was a Baptist before I was a Christian. Amen. I've known several like that too. Amen. Come on now. Satan. Don't you see the devil in the details here? He attacks God's abilities. He aligns with God's adversaries. And let me say this and I'm done. Satan accomplishes God's agenda. Now this is something I don't quite understand all the way, but I just believe it. This is a mind, what we have in this text is a mind-blowing example of the sovereignty of God in everything. Because as wicked and as horrible and as awful as what Saul and Doeg did to these priests. Now that's a wicked... I mean, I can't think... Can you think of anything more awful than what they did? Killed 85 priests and wiped out that whole city. That's pretty bad. That's wicked. I mean, that's wicked as hell itself. Yet, if you're a Bible student, you'll know that what took place in Nob that day was a fulfillment of a judgment that God gave against the house of Eli decades earlier. In chapter number 2, verses 31 through 33, I'm not going to take time to go there, but because of Eli's apathy and his wicked sons, God placed judgment upon the house of Eli. And what we have here, God told Eli that this day was coming long before it ever came. And though God is not for this, and God is not the author of sin, and God does not approve of sin, He does not condone sin, I want to make that abundantly clear, but I will tell you this, that Satan cannot do anything that messes up God's plan. In fact, everything the devil does falls right into the plan of God and right into what God is doing at all times. You say, explain that. Well, I just tried. That's the best I can do. I just believe it. And you believe it too, whether you know it or not. And because if you believe in Calvary, then you believe that fact right there. Calvary is the most wicked, heinous sin that was ever, that it was ever committed on this earth. And yet in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter number 2, Peter tells us that it was determined by the determinate counsel that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. That means before the foundation. How many of y'all believe Calvary was plan A? How many of y'all believe that that didn't take God by surprise? That was the plan from the very beginning. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ was that lamb slain for us. But Peter turns around on the day of Pentecost and he says, and you by your wicked hands have taken and crucified him. God, fully sovereign man, fully responsible. What I'm trying to say is this, is that even when it looks like Satan is doing bad and he is wreaking havoc, can I remind you, friend, sleep 
sleep well at night knowing that God is on the throne and God is in control and everything that Satan does, all it's doing is ushering in God's plan and his kingdom. Amen. Satan will have free reign on this earth, but he'll fulfill everything that God already told them that would happen. Isn't that amazing? We already know everything that's going to happen. Read the book of Revelation. Find out how it all sums up. And yet the devil still is deviling. <laughs> Martin Luther, that reformer, he talked about the devil. He said he's the devil, but he's God's devil. And I want to remind you that, friend. Some of y'all give too much credit to the devil. and not, you, got a, you got a big devil and you got a little God. That's a problem. Yeah, man. You got, a, you got a big Satan and you got a little God. Can I remind you the greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? And though this is wicked in our text, it fulfilled the plan of God. Yeah, man. I'm glad I'm on the winning side. Satan's playing checkers. God's playing chess. Amen. He's got this thing figured out. Well, a couple years ago, it's been several years ago now, Brother Dana Williams preached a message right out of that text, where, chapter 21. You remember that about the sword, Goliath's sword? Give me that. That's a great picture of that truth right there, isn't it? Where did that sword come from? Well, Goliath's sword. Well, it's a Philistine sword, Philistine weapon. Made in Gath there, and I'm sure as those... Philistines were making that sword because it had to be custom made no doubt for a dude that big they're making that sword and no doubt they're thinking man I wonder how many, Phil- how many Israelites I wonder how many Israelites old Goliath's going to kill this thing I wonder man he's going to man, he's gonna, man we're going to have Saul's head cut off with this sword right here little did they know a little shepherd boy named David was going to take out the very sword that they made and cut off the enemy's head with it Can I tell you, that's exactly what God is going to do. He will take the very things that Satan does. Though he does not approve them and he does not not, uh, condone them and he does not author them, but yet he will gladly take them and he will use them for his glory. I'm glad I got a big God. I'm glad I'm on the winning side. The devil's in the details. Hey, but God's on the throne. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We thank you for your many blessings. Lord, you've been so good to us. Just allow us to be together this afternoon for the beginning of this service and this meeting. Father, I pray that you take these truths and use them in our heart. And Lord, I pray that for the remainder of this meeting, this whole week, God, that you'd continue to speak to our heart. And uh, God, we need you. We need, I, need help. I need help from you. I need a touch from you, I pray. Lord, I pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. All of the preachers asked me to give an invitation. Let's bow our head and close our eyes just for a moment. And our sister's softly playing on the piano there. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what kind of invitation to give other than say, a God like that, that can do those things, God like that deserves our worship, deserves our praise, deserves our adoration. Maybe you've been worried. Maybe you've been letting the devil talk to you about some things and say bad things about God, about his people, about his church. Maybe you need to tune him out and get back in tune with heaven and believe him good things of God. Amen. Worship and praise him.
If you enjoyed that message, say amen. 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 I appreciate the Word of God, don't you? And uh, You know, we're not a Calvinist, but we have to believe God's sovereign if we believe the Bible. Isn't that right? We believe that before they ever came along. Right. Amen. He's providential. He's all-knowing. If he wasn't all-knowing, he couldn't have wrote that book. Amen. He sees the beginning. He sees right now. He sees the end because he lives. God doesn't live in time. He's not, he doesn't live in the dimension. He lives in eternity. And so he lives in the past, the present, and the future. Amen. So he is in it all. So he knows.